We're uh, starting a new conversation on prayer. It's not a new conversation, it's an ongoing conversation, but that's what we're starting here this uh, Sunday morning, and it's kind of a continuation of the conversation we've been having about uh, living at the speed of love. So I'm going to ask you to do something for me. Uh, Just close your eyes for a second. This doesn't have to get weird or anything like that. I'm just going to ask you some questions, and it's just a way to focus your energy. And I'm going to ask the the teens in the back to particularly close your eyes and just focus for a second here. Because I just want to, I want you to, um, I just want you to think about or try to pay attention to a thought or a feeling for a second. And the best way to do that is to just take a moment and and focus. So what I want to know is um, what emotion or feeling does the word prayer elicit in your heart or your mind? What emotion or feeling does the word prayer elicit in your heart or your mind? What's the feeling that you're thinking about if you were to put a word to it? Does it elicit a nice feeling? Does it elicit a feeling of joy and peace, of gratitude, like a weight lifted? When you hear prayer, does it actually make you just like breathe easy? Or is it an uncomfortable feeling? When you hear the word prayer, does it um, elicit a feeling of anxiousness or fear or shame or disappointment? Like the feeling difference might be the difference between accomplishing something. Does it feel like when you hand in a paper or you finish a project at work or you make a sale, you know that like light feeling? When you hear prayer, does it feel like that to you? Or does it feel like your boss just said, hey, you've got a deadline on Friday that you're not prepared for? Like the weight, the heaviness, the fear, the uncertainty of an outcome. Or maybe for you, as your eyes are still closed, does it elicit like an eye roll or a, kind of a scoff or a brush off that feeling, some parents in the room, you know the feeling when you know your kid's lying to you. Like that feeling of, like, okay, and one of our daughters got caught in a lie. I won't tell you which one this week. But parents know that feeling of skepticism or like, just like that flat-out denial. Is that the feeling that you get? Like, uh, when you hear prayer, does it elicit kind of like a, eh, whatever, or, or yeah, right kind of thing? With your eyes closed still, I just want you to um, try to picture what comes to mind when you hear prayer. Like, what's the first picture that comes to mind? What's the image that you get? And I'm actually just going to ask you, if, if you have, like, a clear image, like, what is that picture that you get? Can you just say what it is? You can say it in this room right now. You can just shout it out. Like, what's the picture that you get? What are you, what are you seeing right now, if you're trying? Just say it loud enough so I can hear What's that? Kneeling at, the cross. Kneeling at the cross. Somebody else said something? A sunrise. A sunrise. Yeah, the sunrise service, right? A ball of light. A ball of light? Hmm. 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 Wow, that's clear. I pictured the dinner table. Does anybody else? What other pictures come to mind? When you hear prayer, first thing that comes up or what you're picturing now, prayer, you're thinking about prayer, what, what is the picture in your mind? Waiting. Just waiting, sitting by waiting, huh? Being held like a child. Being held like a child, wow. What's that? Hmm. Anybody else picture anything else? 
You, you picture a throne, somebody said a field. Go on. I was picturing a moment where I was on the side of a mountain, kind of like that. Does anybody picture like a deathbed or laying hands on a sick person? That also came to mind for me. You can open your eyes. And regardless of the feeling that you get or the picture that you get that comes up when you think of prayer, I want to assure you um, as we go into this conversation, and I want this to be a common thread, that no matter where you're at, God is, uh, intends to meet you exactly where you're at in regards to prayer. Whether it's a positive feeling that you get or a negative feeling that you get, whether it's a, a really beautiful picture, like a sunrise of hope, somebody said a white globe with darkness around it, like a picture of hope, or maybe, I don't know, and it's fair, some of you might get like this feeling of, or this picture of like, it doesn't work, or just, or death, or uncertainty. And whatever that feeling is, whatever that picture is, I just want to assure you again that God is going to meet us right where we're at. No matter what our experience is with prayer, no matter what our understanding is of prayer, no matter what our feelings are about prayer, he wants to meet us where we're at. We're going to go on a journey over the next couple of months as a church talking about prayer. And I hope that this journey is marked by learning new things. I hope that this journey is marked by learning new techniques in prayer, understanding prayer from a new angle, that's part of the goal. I hope that it, um, I hope in this journey we actually find new times and spaces to pray. I hope for you in your life, you actually find new times and spaces and routines and rhythms to pray. I hope in this next season that you actually get to hear about other people's prayer life more, that you get more comfortable asking about it. People tell you about it. They share their story with you. And, and I also hope that you yourself get a chance to share your experience, good or bad, your rhythm, your routine, you're able to share your story with prayer, a moment that you had, maybe a long time ago, maybe recently. I hope that we get to share some of these stories because we're just going to talk about it and we're going we're gonna to talk with one another about it. I believe that this season is going to be marked by those things. This morning, what I want to do is I want to launch that conversation giving a few thoughts as to why prayer. Why prayer? And before we do that, I want us to turn our attention to a famous psalm, Psalm uh, 27. This is a psalm of David. I remember when I was studying theology at Tyndale, uh, the, the idea or the understanding the psalms, I had a new understanding, a fresh understanding of what the psalms were, particularly for the Jewish community. This was a, this was a new insight to me back then. It was about a decade ago. I'll never forget who, I'll forget, I forget who said it, but I'll never forget what they said, which was that the psalms are actually the prayer book uh, were the prayer book for the Jews, for the, for the Hebrews. It was, it, was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a book of common prayer. It was also a liturgy. It was also used in, in worship in their uh, community. And it, uh, it, it gave me a real clear picture of, of the nature of the Psalms and what they actually are and, and their intention and, and, and how they were used, at least especially in Jesus' community and in the, in the community of the first century church. Today, we would, um, the equivalent would be like a hymnal, Actually, it wouldn't. We don't have hymnals. Who has a hymnal still? Nobody, nobody, you do have hymnals still, okay. Um, the hospital ministry, they gave me a hymnal, right? So they still have hymnals. But that's not even, today we don't even know hymnals. Some of the students don't even know what a hymnal is. Um, today's equivalent would be like a Spotify playlist, right? Like the Spotify playlist, worship today, 
you know, key Christian music, like the most popular Christian music songs or whatever, right? It would be, that would be the equivalent, our modern kind of worship playlist. These are the, these are the songs or the, the poems that were sang and that were read, not just like statements, but were actually rhythmic, and they were, um, they were prayed, and they were, they were sang in community, they were declared over the people of God, and they were used this way for hundreds and hundreds of years, kind of the same set of uh, psalms. In the first century, the, um, the psalms, they would have been well known by every Jewish believer. They would have been well known and maybe even memorized by many Jewish leaders and, and, and rabbis. Uh, the psalms would have been written on the hearts of the leaders. They would have known them. They would have quoted them. They would have, the, the, the believers in the community would have been able to recite them. They may not have been able to read, but a lot of them would have been able to recite a psalm. Because just like, just like a lot of us, like we, don't, we have a hard time reading scripture, but we know worship songs, right? And we like singing them, and, and we play them in our car in the background, and and it's, it's, it's actually amazing sometimes when you hear a song, you're like, where do I even know that from? I know all the words to that song. And, and what you realize, it's like, no, you've been singing that, and you've had that on the background. It's just been a recording in the background. That's kind of how the Psalms were used. Particularly Jesus, as a Jewish rabbi in the first century, would have been very familiar with them. He would have probably known them front to back. Many of the Psalms, they were written or composed or compiled by a guy named King David. King David is one of the most revered kings in the nation of Israel and in, in, in their History. He was known as a man after God's own heart. You've heard that before if you've been in church for any amount of time. The fun thing about reading the Psalms, and this is where the Psalms started to come to life to me, because I used to read the Psalms when I was younger, and I used to think, this is kind of weird. It's a little intense. He's asking God to murder people. That's odd. Am I supposed to ask God to murder people? It was, when you read the Psalms, you're like, there's these real highs and these real lows. It's really bizarre. And you're like, how am I supposed to use this? Am I supposed to pray this? Does this mean a good, this was a good thing? Did God kill all those people just because David asked him to? I wrestled with it a lot. And what you get with the Psalms, because a lot of them are written by King David and then compiled by him, they're a weird mix of lament, complaint, urgent request, declaration of victory over David's enemies as their king, a fear of loss. You've got just like this beautiful mix in the Psalms of an astounding theology about God. God's in it all, he's working through it all, and and, and so, so a lot of the Psalms are David and, and the other writers declaring who God is, a theology, understanding of God that was rooted in their, in their, in their history. But, but also you get this like weird like mix of his psychology, right? Like David's spiritual, political, military like leadership in the community and the ups and downs, the peaks and valleys, the requests of a spiritual leader and a king and a military leader and the laments of that. They're just like this really interesting thing. And what I love about them is that, um, well, that, like I said, they're written by David, a king who conquered Goliath. He, he, he evaded Saul and he became the king. He, he set up what eventually became the first temple in Israel's history. And so he's like this amazing man. And then he also, at the same time, murdered the husband of a woman that he slept with right? Same guy. Same guy. That's who wrote Psalm 27. And what's beautiful about the Psalms is that the, it's not like the perfect, it's not, um, it's not just writing the perfect ideal of how we should be or how we should think. That's not a good understanding of the Psalms. It's actually a complex man's response to God and interaction and relationship with God. 
And we believe that it's actually, the Psalms are God's gifts to us. But they're, they're imperfect in the sense that they're written by a, a person who's as complex as you and I. And the beautiful thing is they're relatable in that sense. They're relatable. You can understand David. You can, if you're honest with yourself, you can understand why he's like, God, kill all these people because they're driving me nuts. Is that the right thing to say? Was it right then, but it's not right now? I don't know if it was ever right necessarily for David to say, kill them all and their children, get rid of them all. I don't want them. They're a pain in my butt. God, rescue me. I'm your chosen run, right? Sounds kind of self-centered there. I don't, I don't know. But it's there, and it's God's gift to us to understand. And, and I think we can find ourselves in the Psalms, and particularly in Psalm 27. It's a pretty famous psalm. I actually forgot my Bible can you pass, grab my Bible from my office? I'm supposed to read Psalm 27 and I don't have it written down here. It's the orange one, it's leather. I'm new at this. Thanks. Yeah, give Mike a hand, right? Thank you. It is on the right page. I just want to read Psalm 27 and then we're going to focus in on one particular part of that psalm. So if you can just... Uh, listen in with me. If you have a Bible, you can read along with me. Psalm 27, this is by David. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. I fear no one. That's a lie. He fears people. Um, the Lord protects my life. I'm afraid of no one. When evil men attack me to devour my flesh, when my adversaries and enemies attack me, they stumble and fall. Even when an army is deployed against me, I do not fear. Even when war is imminent, I remain confident. I have asked the Lord for one thing. This is what I desire. I want to live in the Lord's house all the days of my life so I can gaze at the splendor of the Lord and contemplate in his temple. He'll surely give me shelter in the days of danger. He'll hide me in his home. He'll place me on an inaccessible rocky summit. Now I will triumph over my enemies who surround me. I will offer sacrifices in his dwelling place and shout for joy. I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear me, O Lord, when I cry out. Have mercy on me and answer me. My heart tells me to pray to you, and I do pray to you, O Lord. Do not reject me. Do not push your servant away in anger. You are my deliverer. Do not forsake or abandon me, O God, who vindicates me. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will take me in. Teach me how you want me to live, Lord. Lead me along a level path because of those who wait to ambush me. Do not turn me over to my enemies for false witnesses who want to destroy me testify against me. Where would I be if I did not believe I would experience the Lord's favor in the land of the living? Rely on the Lord. Be strong and confident. Rely on the Lord. I just want to focus in on verse 4 here this morning. And it'll be up on the screens. This is from the New English Translation. It says this. I've asked the Lord for one thing. This is what I desire. I want to live in the Lord's house all the days of my life so that I can gaze at the splendor of the Lord and contemplate in his temple. John Goldingay, he's a, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, and he writes it like this. He says, One thing I have asked, Lord, the noise, I'm asking God to get rid of it. Okay. <laughs> Kids are amazing, we love them. Um, one thing I've asked from Yahweh, this is what I look for, that I may live in Yahweh's house all the days of my life to gaze at Yahweh's loveliness and come each morning into his 
palace. And then Eugene Peterson, he writes it like this in the message version. He says, I'm asking God for one thing, only one thing, to live with him in his house my whole life long. I'll contemplate his beauty. I'll study at his feet. My question for us this morning is if you could have one thing, what would it be? If you could have one thing, what would it be? One thing it says in the Psalms. Apostle Paul, he says, one thing I do in Philippians 3, he talks about how he's going to press on towards the goal in Jesus Christ that he has. He says, if there's anything I do, it's the one thing that I do. It's the main thing. Jesus says to the rich young ruler in Mark 10, he says, uh, go sell all your possessions. You lack one thing and you're not willing to do that. This is one thing that you lack. Jesus says this to Martha in Luke chapter 10. He says, only one thing is needed. This is when Martha is at Jesus' feet. And Mary's like, hey, come help out. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. One thing is needed. Spending time at the feet of the Lord. And Jesus says to the blind man, or the blind man says this about Jesus after Jesus heals him. He says, I know one thing. I don't know a lot. I don't know what happened. I don't know, I don't know where I've been. I don't know how this happened, but I know one thing, and that's that I used to be blind, and now I can see. It's one thing. John Golden Gay, he writes in his commentary on, on this text, he says, these declarations about one thing, they vary, but they all recognize that there are moments when you have to focus. In Western culture, we've gotten used to multitasking, partly out of apparent necessity, partly out of choice. We think we can keep adding one more thing to our schedule without asking what are we going to do or what are we going to abandon to create the room, right? What we do is we add one more thing, one more thing, one more purchase, right? One more activity for our kids. One more tutor in math, and then they're going to be success, and then my life will be set up. One, one more renovation. One more vacation. That'll be what we need. One, one more. And what he's suggesting here is that the response or the answer to a fulfilled life is not adding one more thing. It's actually prioritizing one thing. He goes on to say that we're not that very good at standing back and asking what is priority. It's hard to perceive the moment when you have to focus and it's hard to do the focusing. He says perhaps the recurrence in scripture of the expression of one thing indicates that it's not just a western problem. It might be a human problem. So why prayer? Why are we talking about prayer? Why are we going to spend time on prayer? The question again for us is, is our one thing to be in the presence of the Lord? Is it our one thing? If you were to answer the question, what's the one thing that matters? No matter what season of life you're in, whether you're retired or you're just finishing up high school, heading into university, is the answer to that question to be in the presence of God. If you can only have one thing. I'll pause it this morning, and we're going to continue to pause it this because I believe that Scripture shows this and teaches this, that the primary pursuit of the believer the primary pursuit of the disciple, the primary pursuit of the person who says, I follow Jesus, the primary pursuit of the person who says, I've been saved by God's grace, the primary pursuit of the person who calls himself a Christian or identifies in that way, the primary pursuit of that person, which is most of us in the room who have made that declaration, is found in Psalm 27, is to dwell in the presence of the Lord. That's the one primary pursuit. Everything falls from there. The Apostle Paul, he says something similar in Philippians chapter 4. 
We're going to look at this, and we'll probably look at this a lot in future weeks. He says this in Philippians 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. He said, Let everyone see your gentleness. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, in every situation, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, tell your requests to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What I learned here is that the presence of God is both something that is understood, the Lord is near. We talked about the thin veil last week. It's like a theology of believing that he is near. You don't do anything for God to be near. He is near. It's a trust and it's a belief. And then it's experienced the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, the peace of the presence of God that surpasses all understanding. And the means to that is prayer and petition with thanksgiving. So why prayer? Why prayer? Why are we going to spend time on prayer? Strahan Coleman says in his book, Beholding, he says, if the longing is for the soul's deep thirst, that longing that we talked about, the longing of David's heart and what we believe is the longing of all human beings, if the longing is to be satisfied, then theology, cultural analysis, or revived church community is not enough. We need God himself. We need to rediscover how to know him. Why prayer? Prayer is the medium through which we communicate and commune with God. That's why we pray. That's why prayer. Prayer is the place where we sit with God and we talk with God and we listen to God. We rediscover God and we get to know God. We have God himself. Prayer is the place where the veil between heaven and earth is thin. It's most thin. Seems paper thin at times. Uh, Stray and Coleman, he had talked about in this book on prayer, beholding, I love this picture. He says that prayer is like dancing to the sheet music, right? This is the idea of theology and practice is kind of like the notes on the page, but prayer is like the actual dance, right? It's the, it's the symphony. It's, 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 it's the music that's made and it's how it were moved, right? It's, it's the embodiment of the notes on a page. The notes on the page, they don't change us. It's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the walk. It's the joy. It's the pleasure of prayer. It's the dance of prayer. I just thought it's a beautiful way to think about prayer. Why do we pray? Because we commune with God in that space, not just by analyzing notes on a page. So why do we pray? Why prayer? Another reason we pray and focus on prayer is because, well, we're consciously aware that we're walking in a broken world, aren't we? We're aware that we're swimming in contaminated waters filled with bad ideas, hopeless news, toxic relational interactions that are marred by selfish ambition. That's why we pray. If you don't think that, you're not taking time to look around and pay attention to your own heart. We walk in this every day. That's why we need prayer. The ideals of our community and our neighborhood, they're rooted in idolatry, faulty pursuits of happiness, empty promises, and bad ideas, and we know that, right? And they're not just a problem around us, they're a problem within us. Why do we pray? Because this is the reality of what we live in every single day. If we don't stop and pray, then that is what will continue to form us. Why do we pray? Why prayer? The destination of prayer is union with God and the God who is love. That's what the destination of prayer is. So why do we pray? To be unified with God in love. 
Tyler Staten, he says in his book, Pray Like Monks, Living Like Fools, he says, prayer invites you to learn to listen to God before speaking, to ask like a child in your old age, to scream your questions in an angry tirade, to address yourself in vulnerable confession, and to be loved, completely and totally loved, in spite of everything. That's why we pray. That's why we talk about prayer. Why prayer? E.M. Bounds on his book on prayer and its power, he says this, he says, the church is looking for better methods, God is looking for better men, and I added women, because God is looking for better men and women. He goes on to say that God doesn't anoint plans, but he anoints people, and he particularly anoints people of prayer. Why do we pray? Because our missional mandate is empty without it. The kingdom of God that we are to bring here to Milton as it is in heaven needs to be rooted in prayer. It's, it's only accessible through prayer. The presence of God is met in prayer. And the presence that we carry to our community is a result of a life of prayer. Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together, he says, only in fellowship do we learn to be rightly alone and only alone do we learn to be rightly in fellowship. So, ah, yeah, it's... I can only be best with this community when I learn to be alone with God. And I learn to be alone with God when I spend time in this kind of worshiping community. Why prayer? Why are we going to spend time on prayer? Well, because we have a lot of room to grow in it. That's why. We all have a lot of room to grow in it. When I was younger, before I had kids, I used to joke with my friends that I was going to be the dad who wouldn't put my kids' artwork on the fridge unless it was good. I used to say, if it sucks, I'm going to tell them it sucks and wait till it's better before I put it on the fridge, right? Because I don't want bad artwork on the fridge, right? It ruins my house. It ruins our vibe. It ruins the aesthetic. Why would we want that? I don't want to celebrate a poor job before I had kids. This is 22-year-old me. You could imagine. You could picture it. Actually, it's not that far-fetched. What is a miracle is that I'm not that way anymore, right? And you, you can see how things probably have changed. I feel rather differently about it. You probably imagine that. And you can see that. Everything that my daughters make with intention, in love, creatively from the skills that they possess is a work of art that's worthy to be displayed in my home. There's the odd time that Winona's being silly, and she makes trash, and it goes in the trash, because it's just trash, and she's being a goof, you know? But most of the time, she's actually sincere. She wants to create something. She wants to make something beautiful. She comes up to me after I come home at the end of a workday and says, Daddy, I made this for you. And this is what it looks like sometimes. Actually, that's pretty good, right? <laughs> like, when it's her best work, she puts in time, she puts in effort, she puts in care and skill, then it's as good as it needs to be, right? right? Like, this is as good as it's going to be right now, and it's as good as it needs to be today. Her attempt to paint is painting, right? Her attempt to create is creating. It's what it is. There's nothing different than it. It's not that she's not achieving painting or not achieving creating. She is. And as her father, I receive it in love. And I receive it the same way in love, day by day. 
As she practices, she gets better, and her images become more clear. She's already better at colors than I am because I'm colorblind, so she's already way ahead of me in that. Light speeds ahead, but but when when she practices, she works at it, and it becomes a little bit more clear. It makes a little bit more sense, right? I understand what she's trying to do. It communicates more of a story than yesterday's art. Starts to show more technique, maybe a little bit more skill, a little bit more diversity, a little bit more fine-tunedness. But I receive it all with the same amount of fatherly love, don't I? Or I should, at least. And I pray that I continue to do that. I pray that I don't reach a point in my fathering of Winona that I just stop receiving it with the same amount of love that I can receive it today. I pray that I grow to continue to be the father that at whatever they have to offer in their good intentions and love is the best that they can do in the moment and that I receive it like a loving father would receive it. I don't want to lose that. And when it comes to prayer, our Heavenly Father, he treats us the same way, doesn't he? Our Heavenly Father treats us the same way in prayer. The very attempt to pray is prayer. The very act of trying to pray is holy prayer. It is blessed by God. It is received by God, the loving Father, as it is. We don't get it right or wrong, necessarily. There's not a better way to do it in the moment that you're doing it than what you're able to offer God in that moment. There's room to grow. We grow in it, of course. There's lots of room to grow for all of us. But what I think is clear through Scripture and through the life of faith, as far as I can tell, is that the very act of doing it is what forms us, it's what changes us, and it's what God looks down and says thank you and receives it and he blesses it. We're not so much changed by the details or the specifics of the words that we use or the way that we do as much as our heart's intention to pray. So no matter where you're at on your journey, your faith journey, whether you're just getting started or you're not even started yet, whether you've been following Jesus for a whole bunch of years and you've been praying for most of your adult life, my hope is that you believe today that what you have to offer God is enough. He receives it like a loving father was and that there's room to grow. My kids can do much better art than that. I know that in their future if they continue at it. And my hope for us as a community is that we learn to continue to commune individually and collectively with God for the sake of our city, for the sake of ourselves, and for the sake of our city. As someone who's always considered my faith to be one that's rational, intentional, I've always sought reasonableness and livability, I've weighed likelihood in regards to my faith and tried to understand it through that side of my brain. uh, Prayer's kind of been a challenge for me growing up, and I know for many of you it still is, and for me it still is. I've grown up in this cultural climate that we're living in today. This is my home. This is, this is just what is normal for me. I don't know anything other than the cultural moment that we're living in and the place particularly in the world that we are placed in this post-Christian, secular Canada where we've moved on from religion in the name of science and reason and progress. Prayer is still an interesting concept, isn't it? Tyler Staten, he says in his book, we referenced it earlier, he says um, he's in Portland, he did ministry in New York, and he's in Portland today, so very similar cultural environment as us. He says this, he says, prayer is the one aspect of Orthodox Christian faith that isn't threatening to the emerging sociocultural climate surrounding the church. 
In fact, it's inviting. And I think that's true. We have a unique privilege here at Southside of being right next door to our town's premier crystal shop and New Age Center right behind us. And I don't say that, you know, crassly. They, they are. They're the place where people go to buy crystals, to get mind readings, to get tarot card readings, to have mediums do readings. It's a place that they go for meditation. It's a place that they go for spiritual healing. It's where our town goes, especially the part of our town that has walked away from faith or, or still believes in spirituality but is against the whole religious thing. They're going there to be trained in prayer. They're going there to be trained in meditation. They're going there to find a healing. They're going there to find a fulfillment that they're longing to have filled and fed and right behind this, there's all sorts of stuff that goes on there, and I don't really want to spend time talking about it, but I have a conviction. I actually believe this. Based on what I've seen, based on the people I interact with, because I interact with a lot just being here all the time. If people walking into that shop just learned how to pray, I don't think they'd need it. I don't think they'd even want it. I don't think they'd think that they need it. If people in our city just learned how to pray and spent time with people who are learning how to pray and practice prayer, I think the store would get shut down. I think people's longings would be fulfilled. People's deepest desires would be met in moments. And I think we'd put them out of business, not to be competitive in any kind of way. I just think that. I talk to people and I just think, man, if we just prayed more and learned how to pray and spent time inviting people into prayer, people are seeking. They're desperate for it. And there's thousands of years of Christian tradition in prayer. It's been sufficient forever. It still is today because I believe it's where God actually meets us and it's where he satisfies our deepest longings and desires. And what that's going to take for us is to become a people who can say confidently, yeah, my one desire is to be in the presence of the Lord and to live into that. And then to be the kind of people who from 